So hello everyone, welcome. I'm going to just give you a little bit of an overview before we start. And um, I hope you're all well and you've had a chance to look at the, um, the study guide and practice some, <clears throat> excuse me, with this idea of non-self. So this course, of course, is for the development of virtue, meditation, and wisdom. As the Buddha said, that's really the training, the training in higher virtue, higher mind, which is meditation and higher wisdom. And using this idea, this concept or doctrine of non-self is an important factor in this Um, so I, I want to look this week at um, more about meditation and how to meditate with a non-self concept. But I also want to, of course, look at the non-self through the lens of the six sense bases. As you saw in the readings, the Buddha that that we had, the Buddha talked about these six sets of six, which covers these 36 things that bring about, really bring about craving. And that's kind of the point. And of course, it is also a section or a snippet of the chain of dependent origination. Usually we see 12 links, or that's the most common way it's represented. There, there are other places in the sutta where you see different uh, numbers of links in the chain. And this is a partial representation with a couple of things added. <clears throat> you know, the interior uh, sense spaces, the exterior or external sense spaces, consciousness, and then contact and feeling and craving leading us to understanding that when we uh, recognize that all of these things are conditioned, that they're not lasting, that they cannot possibly be considered self, that we have the tendency, the opportunity to let go of protecting them and basing our idea of who we are on those um, insubstantial phenomena and how they affect us. And that's really what we're looking for is how, what is this experience like when we shift from protecting ourselves, um, seeking ways to gain something for ourselves that is actually insubstantial, uh, unsatisfactory, to a position of, of really seeing the Dhamma and knowing that that's not necessary and it causes suffering. Now I want to give you an example and I'm, I'm expecting, I'm pretty confident that you all have examples of this in your, in your life, in your daily experience. So let's say someone says something mean 
or harsh to you. You know, the it's it's very um, understandable, normal that we might feel hurt or perhaps angry. And there could be other reactions. But then we can we can look at where that feeling is rooted. And the Buddha would say it's rooted in thinking that this is me, mine. This is myself. It's rooted in some view, some identity view. Otherwise, there's nothing really to protect or feel angry about. Even that feeling, we think it's mine. Uh, I'm angry or I'm hurt. But if we, if we practice in this way with this idea that the feelings also are not me or mine, they arise, they cease, then what is the shift like when we say, this is not me, this is not mine? And how do we recognize, um, you know, what's left? What's left after that shift occurs? You know, when, when there's a lot of practice around this, then what might happen is very quickly we go to feeling compassion for the person who said it or, you know, a, an understanding of where they're coming from. You know, that kind of, that kind of shift. It's interesting um, to notice that even arahants will still feel fear, for example, Ajahn Mahabhua talked about how he never was able to be free from fear of tigers. You know, it's very common to, to have um, tiger stories, especially Thai forest monks, but it still happens today. We were talking about talking with one of the monks at Abhayagiri, the abbot, now, Ajahn Nyanako the other day. And, um, he told us a story about the mountain lion coming to his tent on a platform out in the woods and leaving its mark on the fly of the tent, big scratch marks, um, trying to let him know that he was in his territory. And after a few more occurrences of various kinds, he decided he would move. And um, while he was moving his things, there was still one box one of these plastic boxes with some of his, his belongings in, in it. And he came back to get it and the lid had been taken off and just slipped to the side, balanced against the edge of the box. And he, he looked and there were claw marks on the latch and claw marks on the side of the box. And there was a roll of paper towel in the box. He said everything was still neat, just where it was left inside the box. But there was one claw mark down the paper towel. So it's just, I don't want you here. <laughs> this is my space. <laughs> so he left, he left that area to, uh, to the mountain lion. But fear arises. And even an arahant might have that because the body reacts. Some of these feelings that come through us are so fundamental, so primal, that it's, uh, it's right there before, before we can uh, even be aware of it. 
but that's not a problem. It's that moment when we have that chance to be aware that we can take a deep breath and go, what am I protecting? And we can follow the trace, the the way the feeling comes about from what contact, the contact of seeing that claw mark or the contact of hearing that that thing that someone said or seeing some sight. And we can trace that back to, you know, what causes that? Um, What do we really think that's going to do to us? And who are we anyway? You know, what am I protecting? And uh, who do I, who do I think I am? I want to tell you a little story about, Um, The monk, Venerable Chana, the second reading that we had was a teaching that the Buddha gave to a monk called Kachanagota. And that teaching, as you saw, was about why we don't um, take a stand on self. He said the world is caught up in these two extremes. Everything exists or everything does not exist. Basically, an eternalist view or an annihilationist view. And he said that Tathagata doesn't take either of those extremes. Because what he witnessed and what we can all witness is the, the conditionality of everything. It comes into being because of some other cause. And then it ceases when that cause ends. And we can can look at that in the most um, direct way with our own felt sense, our own experience. So the, the Venerable Chana was well, the Buddha's uh, charioteer, uh, he's the one who drove the Buddha out the night he left the palace. The one, they, in the commentary, I think it is the, well, I know so. In the commentary, it says that he was the charioteer when the Buddha went to see and saw the aging person, the sick person, and the dead person, and the uh, mendicant uh, seeker inspiring him. But that's, that's actually a story in the suttas. That story is attributed to a previous Buddha, not to, the, to Siddhartha Gautama. Um, regardless of whether that actually happened in our Buddha's lifetime, the, the story is that Chana drove the Buddha out on the night that he left the palace to become an ascetic, to seek enlightenment. And he later became a monk and was with the Buddha all those years. And when the Buddha was dying, he gave a few instructions to the monks and particularly telling Ananda just before he died. And one of those instructions was that the Sangha should, after his death, give Chana the prime punishment. And even Ananda didn't know what that meant. 
So obviously this wasn't something that happened before. And he said, what is the prime punishment? And he said, the monks should not talk to Chan. Don't instruct him. Don't give him an admonishment. And the commentary says this is because Chana had this um, pride that he had known the Buddha. You know, it's kind of like I knew him when. He had the, the pride of being so long in the Buddha's life that he wasn't listening to any kind of feedback. And that this this was hampering his development, of course. So at the time of the Buddha's death, when, when you read about what happened, it's kind of surprising. It's like, what, what is that all about? Then you find the Chana Sutta, where Chana, this is after the Buddha's passed away, is going from building to building with his key asking the monks to teach him. He's become worried. And the monks do, the elder monks, they tell him chana, form is impermanent, feeling is impermanent, etc. Form is non-self, you know, like we studied last week. Feeling is not self and so on with the other khandas. All formations are impermanent. All phenomena are non-self. And Chana thinks, by the way, I love those lines. They appear, those last two lines appear in many, many times in the suttas. It means all conditioned things. So that's all those 36 things and everything else that we are in contact with and that are that make up who we think we are. They're all impermanent. And then it says, all Dhamma are non-self. And there, Dhamma means everything, the conditioned things and the unconditioned, Nibbana. None of that is self. And so they tell Chana this and Chana thinks, well, I, I think this way too, but my mind does not launch out upon the stilling of all formations. In other words, I'm not really getting it. I'm not moving in the direction of understanding and, and the mind becoming still and quiet, completely unattached. It doesn't launch out upon relinquishing all acquisitions. It's still clinging to things that I think I've acquired, like the, the great good fortune to be so close to the Buddha for such a long time. It doesn't launch, launch out on the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, and nirvana, nor does it acquire confidence, settle down, and resolve on it. Instead, agitation and clinging arise, and my mind turns back thinking, but who is myself? But such does not happen to one who sees the Dhamma. So who can teach me that I might see the Dhamma? And then he thinks about Ananda. 
He thinks of how kind Ananda is, how compassionate he is. And Ananda is not living in the same place that Chana is at that point. He's living somewhere else. So he, Chana, straightens up his lodging and he heads out and he goes to where Ananda is. And when he sees Ananda, he asks him to teach him. And immediately Ananda is very happy. So maybe you've broken through your barrenness. You're finished with that whole thing of basically acting like you know more than anyone else. Um, and when he said, and then Ananda says, you are capable of understanding the Dhamma. And when Ananda says that, a tremendous joy arises in Chana, um, rapture. And he, he thinks, oh, I am capable of understanding the Dhamma. And then Ananda says, I learned this from the Buddha's own lips. And then he gives that sutta that we had in our reading, the same teaching that was given to Kachanagota about not taking to either extreme and, and understanding uh, the causal chain of dependent origination and how that, um, is, that self is involved in that, that coming into existence, that clinging to sense experience. So one of the things that I think is really important is to reflect upon the fact that we have the ability to understand the Dharma. And that we, we need to remind ourselves of that when we have doubts. Because we're all here trying to learn. And we also have the ability to directly experience for ourselves when we are kind of lodged in a space of this identity view of this me and mine, and when we shift away from that. So like right now, you know, I can check in, where am I as I'm talking to you? If I'm, if I'm doing this as a self, they're suffering. How do they feel? Do they like me? I mean, I might think those things. Can, can I say this in a way that people will understand without there being a sense of self behind it? But if I'm, if I'm suffering, basically, if I'm suffering about this, there's attachment, there's clinging, there's some kind of wanting or wanting to get rid of. And as you saw in the readings, the Buddha talks about how the all these things, these 36 things cannot be thought of as self. If, you, if we think of them as self, that's untenable. And that this identity comes from thinking, this is me, this is mine, this is myself. And if we go, go along that way without shifting away from that, we can't really put an end to suffering in this lifetime. But if we do shift away from that, if we realize this is not me, this is not mine, this is not myself, whatever, you know, whatever we have, whatever we think we are, whatever we're worried about, 
whatever causes fear, anxiety, sadness, we can look at that and we can look at what it, what it, where is the clinging? What is the, what is it that I think is at stake here? And it, if we can let that go, there's a sense of freedom and peace. We experience peace and happiness. It's automatic, the relief from suffering. And that sets us up for understanding the Dhamma completely. So what happens with Chana is that he, he hears what, what Ananda says. And at the end, he says, those venerable ones who have such compassion and benevolent brothers in the holy life to admonish and instruct them it's so fortunate. He said, now I've heard the Dhamma from Venerable Ananda and I've made the breakthrough to the Dhamma. So this is one of the reasons why I keep emphasizing that we should really avoid making this an intellectual inquiry or trying to debate about details that aren't important for your awakening. But we want to we want to like not let the the sense of self or personality view or that get in the way. Now of course we do investigate to try to understand, but at some point we just have to practice. And this is where we can look at how to meditate um, and reflect upon this concept. So today, when I guide you in meditation, I'm going to give you a basis for becoming calm. And then if there are still inputs from the senses, like, you know, you might hear things, you're certainly going to be hearing my voice. Even with our eyes closed, we see things. Sometimes, whether it's light or there's some kind of like vision and meditation and so on. And of course, because the Buddha included the mind and thoughts in the sense bases, that's, that's often active when we're meditating. And we can actually use the template of seeing where this contact comes from kind of rolling it back to recognize, you know, okay, this is a sound. This comes from the sound and my ear. This is, this is contact. This, none of this is me, mine, for anything you can say. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not myself. And just witness, you know, feel what that does to the experience, particularly if something annoys us or attracts us. When, when, when whether we're meditating or we're not meditating, whenever we can be aware of that pull to bring something towards us or to push something away, this is really a useful observation that we can then 
look, okay, what is it that I think I'm going to gain or lose here? What is it that I am wrapped up in? Where is the, the craving, the clinging to change what's happening? And then the other part around meditating with regard to this is, of course, that so often when we meditate, as we become more still, we have an idea of what we need to do next, or there, we think there's something I should do next to gain the next level, to get to the next jhana, to have the, the experience I had once before, or something like that. And that is becoming right in the moment. So this, this idea of becoming is, is related to this, is part of this as well, another way to see it. And then that is a big barrier to progress, to can even calling it progress sort of sets up this idea, I'm going to get somewhere, when actually the letting go is what brings greater peace and happiness and insight. So with that set up, <laughs> I'd love to hear if you have any questions for clarification and feel free to put them in the chat or to raise your hand and uh, Sarah will ask them, read them from the chat and we'll um, go back and forth between um, those who are raising their hand and those who are writing. Yes, Sarah. I already have one in the chat. Um, can you talk a bit more about the neutral feeling? Mm. Yeah, I didn't really say anything about the neutral feeling, so thank you. That's the tough one, I think, isn't it, to recognize. But if we do, oftentimes we find that there is still suffering there. There would be, because we're not seeing clearly the nature of reality. And when we recognize, oh, this is neither something I'm really averse to or something that I'm wanting, um, the alternative to the neutral feeling that is not understood is complete peace and calm. And, and, and therefore, there's, there's a, a resting in a kind of awareness that isn't caught up in the ignorance of the neutral feeling or the not knowing. I'm... I think in some ways it's easier to look at what I like and what I don't like rather than the three kinds of feeling. So you could try that. If this idea of, oh, is pleasant, painful, or neutral feels too abstract, when you have a sense impression, something comes to your senses, you'll know if you like it, you, you lean towards it, you, you wanna pull it towards you. If you don't like it, you want to push it away. It's pretty immediate. 
And it's pretty correlative to the um, painful and pleasant, but maybe not exactly. Ajahn Chah talked about eating chilies and eating them. And, and it's so hot. These, the chilies he was talking about are so hot that the tears are coming down and you're just like so hot and it feels so bad in a way, but it tastes so good. You can't stop. I can't say I've ever had that with chilies, <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes things are mixed, right? And it almost doesn't matter. It's more about the wanting and the wanting to get rid of. So do what you can to see this, to experience it directly on an experiential level without worrying too much about the, the definitions. Cynthia? Hi, Aya. Can Hi. you... Can you clarify, I always get a little lost with this, what volitional formations are and how that fits into the craving leading to suffering? Yeah, it's kind of a challenging thing to translate the word sankara. But that's what it is, it's sankara. And sankara covers, so it's volitional because we have choice um, in these mental formations, we have, we have some will. Um, and it's, but it's, it's the stuff that forms in the mind. And it's also can become the patterns that are formed in the mind. Is that clear enough, Cynthia? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Lydia? Uh, yes, hello. Um, I'm not sure I understand mind consciousness. Like mm. eye consciousness, ear consciousness, okay, but mind consciousness, I don't understand it well. So could you explain a little bit more? Yeah, think of it the same way as the consciousness that meets the, the sense organ and the object just like just like with eyes ears and so on just think of it the same way there's something when a thought arises in the mind that's making sense of that thought and i wouldn't worry about it at all beyond that um and and what's the purpose of the buddha delineating these things it's to try to get us to unpack this idea of self, who we are, this feeling of this is me. He's trying to get us to unpack that. And it's like, it, what's more important than, you know, like what exactly is that consciousness to really just kind of get how does this fit into the model, into the system that helps us stop playing? I hope that's clear enough. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Yes, Sarah? Contact seems to me to arrive as kind of a package almost instantaneously. Is there something more there to look for within contact or is it sufficient to simply recognize it? 
Thank you. Well, contact, of course, is, um, you know, it's what happens when the eye sees an object and the, and the mind makes sense of it, because that consciousness that comes with the eye um, makes sense of it. And it's, and it's like, it's, that's all it is. That's the contact. So what arises with it so quickly is feeling, usually. You know, you, you see something, if it brings up um, especially a significant feeling, it's, it's there right away. That's the part to, to unpack. Um, beyond that, I wouldn't worry about it. You don't have to go into any more detail than that to recognize that this is suffering. <laughs> and one of the, the lines in the, in the suttas we read is to, to know that everything that arises is suffering and everything that's, the only thing that's arising, everything that's arising is suffering. And everything that's ceasing is suffering. And you can, you can think, well, how is that possible? You know, aren't there some feelings that are, good for us to have but it's it's all around the clinging if we're clinging to it that's where the suffering comes from and without that there's peace even though there's there's a rising there's joy there's kindness that's what's left jesse thank you aya this this course has really stood out from other teachings on anatta because you started with your session on self um, and that's given me a particular great great food for thought on on how to balance these and um, uh, I, not from a philosophical perspective but but I still feel like when I'm letting go of craving or letting go that the senses are myself it then becomes challenging to think well but then my volition is something that and that leads to karma is then something I own. Mm -hmm. uh, who owns the karma? Who who you know possesses this karma? If if I'm trying to you know disassociate with self and and from a practice perspective, to me, my solution is just to not think about karma. It, it will happen whether or not I am mm -hmm. aware of it, uh, and I worry that it will lead to uh, me making and 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 I making. So. Uh, I wonder what other advice you have for kind of reconciling those just from a practical yeah. perspective in our practice. Thank you. You're welcome. So we do have will, as you said, and this conventional self, but when we are present with it from the perspective of knowing that it's impermanent and knowing that it's like a tool that we have, that we can make great things and we can make horrible things and that we very much want to make great things and that we have the responsibility to keep that on track and that it's not really a an abiding, everlasting self that's in charge of this. It's this conventional, this is a process that we still have the ability to alter. And so when we are doing good things and we don't um, become puffed up about it, it's coming more from that place of just kindness, compassion, 
you know, if we're really at peace and we're not craving anything, we're going to operate out of the Brahma Viharas. And it's like I was at a talk once that Ajahn Amaro was giving and someone asked, so if, if I get into this non-self place, you know, like who's going who's gonna to take the kids to school? Who's going to walk the dog? And he said, kindness. Kindness is going to take the kids to school. Kindness is going to walk the dog. And that's exactly how it is. And then the feeling of that, it's not me and my, you know, pedigree dog going down the street. It's just, it's just like, I'm operating this process with all this goodwill and taking care of things. And it wouldn't for the life of me intentionally hurt anyone. I mean, that's where we get. And so then we take care of this body and mind much the way we would wish to take care of anyone else. Does that help? It, it, it does. It, it, it confirms though that, that karma sorts itself out to some degree. I mean, uh, you know, that, that, that the focus is on both letting go of negative you know, craving and clinging and, and attuning ourselves to metta and the Brahmaharas. And, and if we kind of attune ourselves in that direction, karma will flow in its own accord. That's right. That's right. All you have to do is what the Buddhist said in that very short description, avoid doing wrong things, do good and purify the mind. And the karma does sort itself out. It's incredibly perfect and precise. And we don't need to worry about it. We can trust it. We can trust that all the good that you do will come back to you, even if you don't see it right away. Just stay on the right side of the karma. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Sarah? Um, when I'm sitting in meditation and I find myself thinking and I move myself back to my object of meditation, the breath, for example, who or what is it that is bringing me back? Yeah, it's this will of the conventional self, the trained mind. You don't have to worry about whether or not it's what it is, really. Um, you know, we do have this conventional self. We do have the ability to direct our mind. And it's important to remember that. It's not like we're untethered entirely. Um, but we do, this is the, the avenue, this, this non-self, this is the avenue to let go of the clinging and craving that brings the suffering. Thank you for that. Karen? Hey, thank you. Um, something's been coming up for me. Uh, I've been studying a lot desire and aversion in myself. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I'm noticing is that, I don't know, I'm not sure I can articulate this, but it's almost like I'm being prodded to find pleasure. Like, I'll, I'll just be sitting, you know, watching TV. I feel pretty neutral, pretty pleasant watching TV. 
and and these desires keep coming up it's like oh well this isn't good enough go get a some ice cream or do something and i i feel like constantly it's pushing me and uh, i just wondered if you could give me some advice on working with that kind of situation yeah i think it would be good if you could do some work to look underneath that desire underneath the the specific prodding um you might try something like feeding your demons. I don't know if I mentioned that in this class before or not. Um, Mama Sultra Malioni has a book called Feeding Your Demons and, and many courses and opportunities to learn from her and, and her organization about it. But you can just pick up the book and, and learn about how to kind of be present with that feeling in your body of that, of that push, of that that um, restlessness or desire for something. Sometimes um, people talk to me about having desire and they don't even know what the desire is for. It's just there, something's missing, something's wrong. I want something, but I don't even know what it is. You know? And so you can, you can investigate that through a process like feeding your demons. It's, it goes to the body and to the, what we feel, the felt sense in the body. And that's really helpful for um, unpacking it because we can't do it intellectually and we can't do it through talk therapy a lot of the time. We can just, if you go to the body feeling and then use this as a process of visualization, um, you just see what happens. Okay, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. That's very common. Not to worry. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Okay, Jerry. Oh, thanks for taking my question. Um, it, you know, one one thing that stayed with me at most of the day perplexed me, and then you. I'm having a little trouble hearing you, Jerry. Can you get closer to your microphone? Uh, no, actually. Can I... Oops. Okay. Can you hear me now? It's a little hard, but go slow and we'll try to get through it. Uh, hold on, I can just turn on the headset. How's that, better? Oh, much better, thank you. Yeah, I can't hear you, but that's okay. Uh, so the one thing, and you went, you now you just mentioned the sentence, but maybe I could help me. Uh, it's it's in you just actually read it two questions ago. Um, he has no perplexity or doubt that what arises is only suffering arising. Mm -hmm. Right. But there's more than suffering that arises. Uh, it, you know, uh, after a while and a lot of practice and movement on the path, you even said it joy arises. Mm -hmm. There's some delight that arises as there's some quiet contentment that arises. Uh, it, it is the middle way. So there is some uplift that arises. So that's why this thing throws me off a little bit. Yeah. Um, can you hear me now? Uh, if you can't, you can take your headphones off if you want. But because I want you to hear the answer. Yeah, yeah so, that, that, that would help. Hold on. And um, I can just do one more. Okay, now you're muted, so uh, 
Can you hear? Go ahead, go ahead. Okay. So for this, I think it's not gonna be so helpful to try to describe it. You're gonna have to experience it. Just keep going in the same direction of understanding the Dhamma and practicing, because this is something that has to really come through direct experience. It's not really available through the intellect um, in, in, a, in a way that I think is easy to understand or even understandable. It's, it's deeper than that. So you will get there. You keep going. <laughs> right, but the, where I'm at now is because I find it's important and I just took a retreat where they ended it with um, the transcendent or liberative uh, dependent origination. So there was a real emphasis mm -hmm. on, mm -hmm. and in my, in my practice recently and in my life recently, there is joy and yeah. I don't, it's not suffering, but I no. myself don't cling to it. It's going to go, or sometimes I'll test it with, you know, you're going to die or, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, I put my mind to something that is not joyful. So I play with it a little bit, but there is, okay. But, there Thank is you. Really joy. It's there. So let me let me try to make a distinction here that might help. The Buddha talked about the importance of joy and happiness as part of our development. It's certainly, it's essential in meditation for deep concentration, but it's a spiritual joy. So there's a difference between, so when we're talking about here is all the things that come through the senses. This is sense-based experience. And it's, it's um, this arising and ceasing of sense-based experience has a stickiness to it, an irritation to it, even when it's pleasant sense-based experience. But when we have this kind of spiritual joy and the Buddha talked about this. This is one of the things he said when he put an end to his ascetic practices. He said he remembered that joy that he experienced under the rose apple tree when he was a child. It's spiritual joy. It's piti. It's the kind of thing that it does. He said there's nothing to be afraid of with that. The spiritual joy of the Brahma Viharas. There's nothing to be afraid of with that. Um, it's, that's the kind of thing to keep moving towards trading up into that. So that's the decision you need, I think. I think, and I won't say any more, but I think I know sometimes I know it's unworldly joy or unworldly yes, joy. Unworldly joy. And I can tell the difference because there's nothing going on. It's sort of like, it's, it's, I don't want to use the word emptiness that's overused, but it's sort of, it's just joy, period. Yes, yes, yes. It's, it's joy. And it, it's kind of like those thoughts that the Buddha said are right intention. You can think them day and night. It's not going to hurt you. You know, it's not going to hurt anyone, you know? So that's, that's exactly where we want to want to go. And if you think about what happens in those moments when you, you, shift away from the ego, away from the sense of self to a position of like, there's no, no self here wanting to get anything, wanting to get rid of anything. Just that kind of like goodness that we talked about before, compassion, kindness, 
it doesn't have that suffering element to it. So that's what that's that's a good way to look at this. Right. There so is that, more, I'm sure, to to see, but that's right. a good. So, then, so the, those sentences in that sutra are talking about worldly, and not. I think so. I I think so primarily, but I think there's probably more for us to experience right. too in that understand that realization. Thank you for. Yeah, thank you. Response, thank you. Okay, so this is our last question, Amanda, for this period. I had an experience yesterday. Um, so it's the kind of experience that I would often have on retreat, but I'm with my family. Um, so I was sitting in a very beautiful place and it was this experience you're just talking about of the senses dropping away and, um, yeah, just went into that place of no self and it was very impermanent. It's also a very beautiful place. So there's, it's winter here. <laughs> there's a lot of water running and um, so it really just had this opening up of, joy and equanimity and then I got up and I kept walking um, and I was with with my family and that those qualities lasted it was almost like a gate had opened up and you spoke to me about compassion I've been really working this week with like it's like this just very beautiful opening of loving kindness and compassion opened up but then there was this it was very subtle this sense of oh but could this just last <laughs> so it was like I dropped into this beautiful place this beautiful well mm -hmm. but then there was but it was very subtle mm -hmm. yeah and, and it, it was still and that's where the suffering that like the of that. yeah that's the suffering so I think I think what's valuable is to recognize that even those beautiful states are impermanent. Okay. Like the Brahma Viharas are impermanent. And if we know that, if we, you know, this too is not me or mine, I can't yeah. um, own this. But it's a pleasant abiding here and now. And it's and I'm, I'm just curious about is because this is an in daily life practice that this is happening in for me. Where in the entirely it, in daily life. So in daily life. yeah, yeah. So I'm wondering. I'm like, it's so interesting to have the possibility of this just coming spontaneously arising in daily life. Yes, this, it's wonderful. Like you're saying, like dropping the kids off at school. Like, oh wow, yep. that's possible. I'm yep. just curious about this. Yep. Wow. <laughs> you keep on going. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. Now, some meditation. It's not going to be long, but it's going to be powerful, I hope. So find a comfortable position where your spine is straight. Establish mindfulness. 
and bring your attention to your breath. Be aware that you're breathing in as you're breathing in. And as you're breathing out, be aware that you're breathing out. And with each out breath, let go a little bit more. With each in breath, bring in a little more calm. And really stay very closely present and aware. The mind is bright and clear. Feeling what it feels like to breathe in. And feeling what it feels like to breathe out. Then open your awareness to take in your whole body. You're still aware of each in-breath and each out-breath and the whole body. And then invite the body to become tranquil, letting go of any tension any stiffness. And as you're aware of the in-breath and the out-breath and the body, invite the body to become more calm. And then begin to notice any feelings arising that are pleasant. Mindfulness itself brings a kind of joy within. As you breathe in, as you breathe out, feeling any joy or warmth 
tingling or fullness. And we'll give it a few minutes, but stay with the in-breath and the out-breath and the feelings of joy. The more you relax, the more gently but firmly present with the in-breath and out-breath, the more you invite the joy, the more you will feel it. And as I said, joy can come in various sensations in the body. Sensation of tingling, perhaps in the hands, the top of the head. Sensation of fullness, happiness. Perhaps warmth. Or any other sensation or experience that indicates to you that there is this spiritual happiness, spiritual pleasant feeling, indicating that you're becoming more calm, more tranquil. Notice the activity of the mind and thoughts. And invite that to calm down. So that the body is tranquil and the mind becomes tranquil. Resting and appreciating pleasant feeling in the body, a happiness that comes with mindfulness and being clear. Using the breath as an anchor and support as a way to allow the spiritual energy to blossom, to expand.
Notice any sense input. Look upon it kindly. Know that it's impermanent. And it's not so. Whether it's thoughts in the mind or sounds, sights, smells, tastes, textures we touch. Just let them fade, attending to our in-breath and out-breath. calmness of the mind and the calmness of the body. We can expand our attention to include the mind, the mind itself, the mood of the mind. It's tight or relaxed, expansive or contracted. Just feeling the kind of state of the mind. Bringing in some uplift to the mind. Perhaps a thought that brings spiritual joy. Thoughts about the Buddha, the Dhamma, the enlightened Sangha. Thoughts about your own virtue. Thoughts about your generosity. And if anything from the six sense bases comes to impinge, See it for what it is. If any thought of trying to get something comes in, see it for what it is. Let go of becoming. Let go of needing anything to happen. Just be present and aware mindful and happy. Tending to the in-breath and the out-breath, 
just in the background, knowing you're breathing in, knowing you're breathing out. Part of your mindfulness is that awareness of the senses, of the thoughts. As they arise in the mind, we're not, we're not looking for anything, just present, watching what comes.
Okay, now um, we'll be going into groups for about 20 minutes. And there's a question that's going to appear in the chat. Um, recall an experience of shifting from a sense of self or identity to a position of non-self and how that felt. So if you need a quick bio break, this is your chance. And otherwise, um, enjoy your small group conversation. If, if you'd rather not be in small groups, you can come back to the main room if you like, but I encourage you to explore this a little together. We have a question from Ian. Please go ahead. Yeah, so I put my hand up because I presumed you were going to ask for questions, but if you had something else in mind, that's okay. No, no, I am asking for questions. Please okay. go ahead. Okay, so, um, you know, it was an interesting exchange. We all, um, you know, could really share some valuable things. And what came to my mind is there are places where I can really, um, you know, shift into the not self and it feels very valuable. Is there, is there a place and how do you do that in the middle of the night? If like last night I woke up mm. and I couldn't go back to sleep and, you know, it feels very much like it's about me, um, no specific thought that mm -hmm. I remember that came to mind that woke me up. But So do you see any um, way to work, shift into no, no self in the middle of the night on the... I think the best way is through meditation. And you might want to you know, use the Brahma Viharas meditation or something like that. Something that really lifts up your heart. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. You can also put questions in the chat if you like. Um, yes, Sarah. So one question in the chat. As a spiritual gift, joy oftentimes arises after a period of darkness. Is joy inevitably followed by its opposite, regardless of one's relationship to it? Maybe there is less suffering if one knows that it too is impermanent. It's definitely uh, less suffering if you know it's impermanent. It doesn't necessarily have to be followed by its opposite. Um, in terms of joy, I mean, we can learn how to cultivate joy and spend much, much more time in joy as we go along. And the other Brahma Viharas as well, we can um, just recognize whatever's arising for what it is. And then we can develop the ability to uh, bring that joy or compassion or loving kindness, equanimity to the fore and, um, and rest in that. So it's as we train the mind, 
we are less and less at the mercy of whatever mental states just happen to arise. Can get to where we think what we want to think when we want to think it. We can develop that shifting to non-self and that um, ability to experience certain states at will. So it's just an ongoing practice and, and we should keep going in the right direction and we'll discover all kinds of things that are wonderful and supportive. Please go ahead again, Helen. Um, so I'm a very independent, um, legally blind, functionally blind woman and I use a white cane a lot and I'm a soldier a lot or People tell me to walk into traffic when they know it will be dangerous for me or they grab me. I, I shared in the group that studies show that blind women who use white canes are assaulted every two weeks on average in our lives. And I walk around needing to defend myself, needing to be ready to defend myself physically, to prevent rape, to, to prevent myself from being shoved into traffic. Um, and I'm pretty even with people and I threaten <laughs> I will say to somebody, you have no idea, I'm very trained, I can hurt you. And, um, and I find it difficult to, to shift out of that kind of needing to be physically grounded, needing to have a me to protect my body, myself, and then shift into a place of being of not me. And um, if you have any teachings on that, I would I would love to know because I'd like it to be a little more seamless, I guess, um, or seamed or or something. But um, and I'm not bemoaning this. This is just a part of my life that yeah. I experience, and I deal with it very very well. And I don't walk around bitter or angry, I just walk around defended a lot and ready for this to happen and ready to step into the role of, okay, I'm gonna protect myself. Yeah. Um, and then other people around me get angry at somebody who said, oh, you can cross the street now when they know that I'll get hit by a car. Like, oh and they say, how do you live with that? And I say, it's just somebody else is that angry that they have to do that. How sad for them. I mm -hmm. feel for them. Um, so it's, it's for people follow me around and say, watch out for this tree, watch out for that, watch out for this. And I'm like, let me tell you how I make my decisions about street crossings. And then maybe you'll feel less scared of being blind. So there are things that people do that are because they're terrified and they wouldn't have a clue how to handle being blind. Yeah. But the, the, the question I have is really how to support myself, my, my, um, my physical existence in a world where I'm going to be targeted at any moment and, and not, not walk around, not carrying it, not carry it beyond the moment when the threat has ended. Either I've stopped a rape from happening or, <clears throat> or stood in such a way as to not be able to be pushed into traffic. Right. Any teachings you have on that, any thoughts, I would be grateful for them. Okay, Helen. Yes. Well, first of all, I want to say it sounds to me like you're doing a pretty good job. 
I mean, you're, 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 um, you know, talking about not being angry with people and equanimous pretty much. And, you know, and, and it's important that you do protect yourself for your own well-being and for the well-being of the people who might be so um, completely lost that they would harm you. And so I think first and foremost, acknowledging that is important. And then it is true that that kind of, um, you know, fortress that you have to a safe place for that to dissolve. And I think that's also really normal. It's almost like any kind of, like when emotion comes into our body, those chemicals are still flowing after we're finished with it. So we just, the observation of it is enough. You can notice it's happened and you notice it happening, notice how it feels. Um, I believe that you, even though that defendedness is there, it doesn't have to come from a place of me and mine. And I think you've already got that feeling. So just keep noticing that and, and noticing what it's like when you are in a safe place and you don't have to have that, that um, defense in, engaged. Notice what it's like. Notice what it's like when things do come up that are triggering and work with that. Work with it in a safe place. That's where you practice. In a safe place, yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. And, and it's not being a me mind thing. There's um, blind women's friends of mine say that we never get to the key in PTSD <laughs> because we kind of don't, but I don't want to linger in that. There's no freedom from dukkha and thinking, oh, I never get to the P in PTSD. Right. Because it's always happening. It's always cycling. So, um, and I don't want to, I don't want to be beset by that um, because it is a moment. It is, it is a moment that it ends either because I've defended myself or scared someone off or stood mm-hmm. my ground to not be pushed or so I, yeah. uh, so the maybe combining as I'm hearing you offer the teaching, it's the not me can come together with the, this passes and, and to be free, free myself from the idea that I never get to the P. I do get to the P. Yeah. 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 Because the, the, you can get to the peacefulness, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not going to change the situation, but it changes everything about how you, how you experience and, and the freedom of your own mind. Thank you. Yeah. Thank okay. You. Take good care. Yeah. Phil. Thank you very much. It's been a great series. I've really appreciated it. It it seems to me that we're talking a lot about not self, but I wonder if you could make a comment about self. And it seems that it's our our understanding of the definition of self 
that is critical to whether we can say it's not self or self. Mm-hmm. If we understand the self is not permanent and enduring, then it makes sense that it is not self. But if we have insight in understanding that the self is a temporary condition constructed uh, entity, mm-hmm. can we then call it self? Yeah, that's why I talked about the conventional self. So, you know, that whole conglomeration of, you know, I have this body, I have this mind, I have will, I have to, I have my own responsibility to develop virtue and keep precepts. I have my own responsibility to do good in the world. Um, The Buddha talked a lot about that. But But we're not talking, we're not talking about we're not, so it's, it's like, exactly. We're not talking about a self that lasts forever, like a soul. Yeah. Maybe in our culture, it's easier to call it a soul. Um, and the Buddha was saying, try to find that, you know, try to find that in anything. And he said, you can't, well, he couldn't. And he asked the monastics that are with him, do you see anything that is permanent? that can be a self. And they're like, no, you can't, you can't, it's undiscoverable, he said. So the point really is that we are, we believe we are being and owning something that can't be satisfying. It's, it's not, we can't own anything. Nothing belongs to us. You know, it's, it's, it's just, you know, to recognize where the suffering comes in with our misperception that this is me and I need to be something. There's always suffering in that. Or I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, die. And then I'm going to be, as Buddha said, maybe the perception is, or the idea, the view is I'm going to be one I'm one with the world and I'm going to last forever and ever. I'm going to go to heaven and last forever and ever. You know, the Buddhist said, this isn't how it works. But I'm, what I'm asking is if we have the insight that the self is a condition construct, mm-hmm. can we then say, ah, this is a self, but we're not identifying with it. See what well, I mean? I don't, all, all that is then I believe is the conditioned self, the, the right. body, the mind that's, processes running and so the buddha used that word atta okay. for that and and he was very he talked about it in the ethical sphere almost almost always so that and he talked about the the self as be an island unto yourself and then he immediately talked about all the all the non-self so he didn't want people to get confused about what he meant but he wanted to in, impress upon us that that self is uh, something we're responsible for. So yes, you can call it a self. Just you got to know what we're talking about. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay. That looks like our last question. Thank you, everyone. Um, I um, really appreciate your practice and want to wish you all well for the coming week.
and I'll be posting the, the uh, study guide soon. And uh, we'll see how well, how, how, it, how the um, recording goes, but we'll put it up as soon as we can on YouTube. So take care, everybody. I hope you have a good week. And I look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.